Okay. I don't know if you guys ever feel jealous of other musicians, but I definitely have at times. And we don't always talk about this because jealousy is a hard feeling and, and maybe even a little embarrassing. But the role of a good therapist is to talk about hard things. And I want to open up this conversation. We're talking all about artistic jealousy today on Music Therapy. Hey everybody, welcome to Music Therapy. I'm Jessica Risker. I'm a musician based here in Chicago, Illinois, and I am also a licensed clinical professional counselor. Music Therapy is a mental health podcast for musicians and music fans where we get into mental health, the creative process, and music careers. Visit musictherapypodcast.com for previous episodes and upcoming events. We have an upcoming event. February 8th at Cafe Mustache, that's a Wednesday, we are hosting Chicago band Waltzer on our group session. They're amazing. They're a lot of fun. Come on out and join us for a live taping of music therapy. We also have a Discord. I'm going to put a link in the episode description. Come join us if you want to get off social media, but you still want to talk to some other musicians. Okay, let's get into it. Today we're talking about artistic jealousy, and I have a very special guest. And if you like podcasts, you might actually know this guest. This is Ben Stover. Ben is a therapist. He's a musician, and he is also a co-host of the Popcorn Psychology Podcast, which is where three licensed therapists break down and analyze popular movies and characters from the perspectives of an individual, child, and a marriage and family therapist. Check it out. In the meantime, we're going to dig into artistic jealousy with Ben Stover. Okay, well, I am here with Ben Stover. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you're welcome. I'm happy to be on. So I start every episode with uh, the same question, which is, will you tell us what a, a general, an average week looks like for you these days? An average week for me looks like I work uh, 40 hours as a therapist for the police department, and then I do private practice work on the side, and somewhere in between there, I make time to be a dad and a husband and also pick up my guitar and jam out on some Metallica when I get the chance. You sound busy. Little bit. How many hours are you doing therapy a week? Mm, typically 38, maybe a little bit more than that. And you're a clinical director? Yes. At a Ardent Counseling Center? Yeah, at the Lakeview office. We have several offices uh, in between Illinois and Iowa, and I take care of the supervision of our provisional clinicians here and help guide them in their clinical path and help them become clinicians that are fully licensed and ready to take care of their own work on their own. Wow. Okay. So yeah, this is, you also are a co-host of a podcast as well. Can you tell us about your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. So five years ago, we started, four years ago now, I guess we started Popcorn Psychology, which three therapists, two of which who used to work here with me and now are uh, out doing bigger and better things, went on to, uh, we started this podcast based on a conversation we had in the office about The Last Jedi and being confused by all of the fan backlash at it. Like, that's not my Luke. Why is he acting like that? And us therapists who are taking a look at that and going like, <laughs> uh, let me go ahead and run down the list of traumas this man has encountered and absolutely he would be acting like this uh he failed 
in so very many ways his primary mission in life that his nephew took over the mantle of the dark side yeah he would quite likely be quite done with life and retreat so you felt they they captured an accurate psychological profile of the character in the, in I, the film i did i felt like this is what complex ptsd looks like and at some point people will retreat into withdrawal from society, they will just deactivate and hit a state of hypoarousal where they are done with everything. So popcorn psychology, you, broadly speaking, what do you guys do on the show? So what we do is we take a look at big time movies, popular movies that have come out and sometimes shows. And we look at them through the lens of therapists. I cover the individual and trauma end, and my partners are a child therapist and a marriage and family therapist. Uh -huh. So we cover the psychological things we see in the movie. We talk about what diagnoses might be present or not present and some factor fiction with what those would look like in real life. Uh -huh. Then we talk about treatment that we would do if those characters were real and then give our final thoughts and review of the film. Uh, that's amazing. I'm curious how your audience responds to these episodes. Uh, they respond very positively in general. I think a lot of people have given us feedback that they learn a lot and uh -huh. they're excited. We make a point to speak very plainly and not get too in the weeds with jargon or clinical talk. We explain pretty thoroughly everything that we talk about as if we were talking to a client to make it accessible. Our whole goal is really to defeat stigma so that people can hear about these mental conditions that are shown on screen without having to access their own defense mechanisms. So we can bypass a little bit about that so someone can see, oh, well, if if Luke Skywalker could benefit from therapy, maybe I could, too, or if Batman <laughs> or anybody else. Amazing. I think Batman definitely could benefit from some sessions. A little bit. Uh, that's, that's incredible. I love that. Let's, let's turn to our topic today. This, this is a topic that, um, was both born out of all the conversations I've had so far on this podcast, um, with other musicians and also out of my own experience. And that's, that's artistic jealousy. Do you differentiate between jealousy and envy? No, not, not really. I think they're more synonyms for the same word. I think there's an argument for differentiating them, but for me, I generally take them as as synonyms. Yeah, I, I think I do too. I read a um, interesting definition one time where somebody said, jealousy is when you're afraid you're going to lose something and envy is when you want something that somebody else has. I could see that as a absolutely defendable argument, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no issue with that. So artistic jealousy, let's see, where do we begin? I mean, before we started the recording, we were both saying that this is something we've experienced as well. Can you can you tell me a little bit about your music, musical side of your life? Yeah, absolutely. I have been playing guitar for about 20 years now, and I started my music career probably in, like everybody else did in the fifth grade with band playing okay. trumpet and by high school. I kept playing trumpet through high school and then started picking up the guitar around that time. And now I've continued with guitar. I've been hugely inspired by Metallica and any of the other hard rock or thrash bands from the 80s through you know, probably early 2000s. And I've played in a band since college. 
uh, me and the drummer I play with now have kept music going through the dissolution and multiple evolutions of that band as anybody's been a musician knows <laughs> happens we start to change format back and forth over and over again but i've played originals i've played covers i've played a mix of both uh, and currently working on starting up a metallica project but that's uh, developing yet what is your band name TBD. The past ones have been Another Black Hour and Kingdom Zero. We haven't figured out one for the Metallica band just yet. Working titles Ride the Lightning, but we'll see. Okay, very cool. Yeah. So, so you've done original music. You said you've done covers, and then I'm assuming performance has gone like live performance has gone along with that as well. Oh yeah, yeah. We've we've done performances. Uh, we played some bigger venues. We played some smaller, lots of smaller venues. Never quite cracked the big time, but we we did win a few contests, got to play at Hard Rock Chicago and compete for, uh, you know, attention to play in front of producers for Disturbed and Evanescence. And that was a pretty cool experience to get to play in front of those people and get feedback from them. We didn't win that day, but, you know, getting pretty close is better than a lot of people do. And we've also got to open up for some acts that, are in, in all of our iPods from back in the day. We opened a show for Alien Ant Farm once. We also opened for Michelangelo Badio, who's a guitar wizard. Guy who plays four or quad necked guitars. He's incredible with what <laughs> he does. But we've gotten to do some pretty cool things with music that, you know, there are people who are better guitarists than me and a whole lot of people that are better singers than me, but not as many who have the courage to just get on the stage and put it all out there and do it. You and I have uh, this in common, that we're both therapists and we're also both musicians. Yeah. What what degree of importance does each play in your life? Or are you like, I've always, is, is there a secret rock star in you that's just paying the bills by being a therapist? Or is it something on the side? Where does, where does this fit in your life? Where do both roles fit? I think it's changed as I've gotten older and more responsibilities and also you know, a lot of early music career depends on being able to bring out your friends to shows. And as your friends get older and start having kids, they have a little bit less space in their life to come out to local shows. Mm -hmm. So I think my relationship with it has kind of changed as time has gone on. At one point, I, we were really trying to start building momentum to be the, the rock star who pays the bills by being a therapist and a DJ. And then now at this point, Music is more of a aggressive hobby for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a part of who I am, and I can't seem to let it go or not buy guitars or get gear acquisition syndrome. But being a therapist is definitely first and foremost in my life. I'm you know second to being a, a dad and a husband, of course. How does that sit with you? Where these roles have landed? I'm comfortable with it. You know, it, it took me some time to make peace with it, but. Realizing how much of a grind the music industry really is was something that took a long time to learn to adjust to and make peace with. That if you're not going to go all in, you have to make a lot of peace that you may never meet your goals, but you're going to play for you and see what happens. And that's kind of where I landed is that, okay, I invested all this time and effort and money in a graduate degree and this career. So 
that's always been my calling and above music. So that's sort of where I landed now is I will play when I can. And if we can get out and make some shows happen again, we'll do that. But I have no expectations of being anything other than a local musician at this time. When you were sort of assessing what it takes to quote, you know, sort of reach your dreams as a musician, the grind, what is that comprised of? There's a lot of sacrifice, a lot, a lot of sacrifices. It is so much easier to play other people's songs and be a cover band and make money than it is to get people to even listen to an original song, let alone come out to shows. The music industry is so geared on re like repeatedly playing the same 20 songs over and over again that getting into any kind of listenership is such a challenge that it takes writing great songs, mm -hmm. rehearsing them, um, dealing with everybody's ego and personalities and skill level as you write these songs, refining them, being able to take feedback, and then getting out there and playing night after night after night to empty rooms with promoters that are pissed at you that you were supposed to bring X number of people and you brought four under that, or you brought four total. It depends. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, that, that grind of networking and getting with other bands and putting shows together can become a full-time job. And even if it does, and you bring a hundred people out, the promoters or the bar might show up and go like, oh man, you you put at least 4,000 hours into making this show happen. Here's 80 <laughs> bucks you're right. cut from the door. And you go like, what? <laughs> like, hold on, that doesn't even cover my gas. Right. And it it's, feel, a, it's a big challenge. It's a challenge. So we're we're approaching this topic, artistic jealousy, from both our experiences therapists, but also as our very real personal experiences as musicians. So we're yeah. going to be, I think, probably going back and forth here. That's okay. Uh, doing these roles, absolutely. So how do you how, how do we dive in? I mean. I was thinking about this before we began and I was thinking of um, the different kind of the different ways you could arenas that you could feel jealousy as a musician. I I've, I thought of four. Let me see what you think. So one could be uh, feeling jealous of um, another's performance or performance ability. Okay. Another yep. might be feeling jealous of someone's talent what you see is sort of their raw talent or what they're bringing to their craft. Mm -hmm. Another one might be, and I hear this with my own clients, um, is a sense of jealousy over your perceive your perception of somebody's productivity. You know, I have clients who feel have have said like I, I have this feeling that I would really be doing it right if I were sitting in my basement seven hours a night just working on music every day. Yeah, and you know, a, a certain, in my opinion, romanticization of this extreme work ethic of, you know, just working on your art, totally absorbed. And then the other one I think stems from, seems very intertwined with social media. And that is the numbers out there, the attention people are getting, the likes they're getting, the shows they're getting, the, what they're, what they're achieving and how that may be. You may be witnessing that as you interact with your phone or whatever, and how that makes you feel about where you are yourself. Those, those were the four areas that I came up with. Is there anything else that 
you can think about? Yeah, I I think those are great and cover a lot of what I was thinking about. I think for me, the things that cause the most of that artistic jealousy are when you see people that are close to your level, at least the way you perceive yourself. And level meaning what? Like your your level of talent. Okay. Your your skill level or the the realistic thing you might be able to achieve. Like I don't think I'm going to get out there and when I watch go go see a Metallica show or any other you know professional touring band that's filling stadiums, I don't feel as much jealousy when I watch that. I don't compare myself to that inherently. I know that I am not anywhere close to that level. Mhm. That I can't make that happen for myself, but when I go out to see local shows or see friends or associates I know who are still playing who I perceive to be at the same level or maybe an attainable level higher or maybe even a little bit less talent Mm -hmm. than me or my group have or have Mm -hmm. had. I think that's where I see the most of it of going, I could and should be doing this. And if they have better connections or have less obligations than I do that make it easier for them to access that or the thing we haven't talked about, which is luck, honestly. Yeah. I think there's a whole lot of luck, but looking at that as where I see the most artistic jealousy of like, there is no reason why I could not be playing this same show as this person and getting this kind of response. I am at least this good. That's interesting because, you know, I think that when I feel it the most tends to be with other female performers, even Mm. if male performers are, as as you kind of use the word, the same level, you know, playing the same stages, doing the same type of music. Right. It feels like it comes out when I'm seeing other female performers, which sucks because I want to, and I try to be supportive and, and want to be there and, and we all lift each other up. But I think that's interesting that there's something that, we're identifying in ourselves that feels like um, you're very close. There's something that you can really identify with this person on stage that feels very close to who you are. Right. That's bringing out those feelings. I think that's where I struggle with it. I, it doesn't matter too much male or female. It's more talent level. Mm-hmm. I, I became a singer sort of by default. I am not the world's best singer, but also for the genre I play of hard rock, I had to accept a long time ago and learn that that doesn't really matter. Uh-huh. Like some of the guys that are, and girls that are, although the, the standard's much higher for women, unfortunately, but the some of the guys that are rock singers and punk singers are terrible, <laughs> objectively. They're just they're not very good. Right. But it doesn't matter because it fits the genre. Right. And once I learned that and was able to let go of that, that okay, I don't sing like John Legend. I can't sing anywhere close to guys like that. I can't be like Freddie Mercury, but that's okay. So when people are coming out and singing different genres and totally different styles that require vocal acrobatics that I can't do or don't have, uh, probably never will have, I don't feel that same jealousy. But when it's people who are comparable and are like, that could be doing this, they, they, you know, this is a genre-defined performance where somebody's just, you know, good enough and there is no reason why I can't do that. That's where I, I start to feel that twinge of, I should absolutely be on this stage. 
So what do you do with that feeling when you when you notice that? It depends. And I think where like the therapy side of me turns on is when I haven't been as active, which I haven't been since the pandemic. And we've uh, historically as a band struggled with keeping lead guitarists around for just whatever reason. Uh-huh. Um, people move, people want to do something else. Uh, people start grad school. Just, you know, life happens. There hasn't been a whole lot of personality issues. just been life happens. Yeah. And other things take the place of that. But when you haven't had the chance to really grieve for the loss of that group or whatever momentum you had, because we've had guys quit. We just recorded an EP and we got a guy quit as soon as we like we had it getting pressed and getting worked on and ready to gear up and really play some shows. And it's like, hey, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm like, what? <laughs> oh, wow. Really? Okay. I mean, awesome. But I mean, it is what it is. It happens all the time in professional land that people just get tired of a project and they want to do something else. And that can hit in the middle of a tour. And I think for me, that whenever I'm not actively doing something, when there's no shows on the horizon or a project has stalled out for whatever reason, that is when I tend to feel it because I'm working through my own feelings of like, I want to be out there and mm. I have no avenue to it. And I haven't grieved or accepted that whatever level this band is at is not a reality for me at this phase in my life with a four and a half year old child. That's, that's how old my kid is too. So the emergence of jealousy can be a reflection of where you're at. Mm-hmm. whether that's still in the middle of coming to terms with changes in your band or not feeling like you're working on music as much as you want to be. it's It, it can be used as a sign to kind of look at what am I, what's going on right now that's I'm processing or need to process. Absolutely. I, I think one of the things that people don't talk about enough is what even the concept of a small T trauma is. People understand what trauma is from the big T standpoint of big, scary, horrible things that happen to people, death, dismemberment, sexual violence, etc. We all get that those things can really take a long time for people to come to terms with and move into the next phase of their life with the knowledge that they gain from that. And that can be really hard. But what people, some people don't even know that there's a word for it is what a small T trauma is which are anything that change the definition of how you see yourself for the world. And that can be little things. That can be the time you got called up to do math on the chalkboard in fourth grade and farted in front of the class and everyone made fun of you. Or it can be that embarrassment you got from someone leaving a band and you talking to all your friends about it. And then you're going like, yeah, and they're like, oh, what's going on with the band? And like, yeah, it's not a thing anymore. Let me, I want to, I want to go back and, and ask you to say this again, define mm -hmm. this again. A small T trauma is? A small T trauma is a trauma, a, an event that can change the way you see yourself or see the world that doesn't rise to the level of, it doesn't rise to the level of a deadly threat or any terrifying status, mm -hmm. but it does hurt. And it can be a thing that changes the way 
you perceive yourself. Changes the way you perceive yourself or the world. Mm -hmm. So thinking about that in terms of, you know, you're, you're tying that back to perhaps you lose a band member. Mm -hmm. What are some other kind of musical examples you can, you can give? Uh, the musical equivalent of getting the yips, I think would cause that if you get on stage and have a, a big fuck up right in front of other people and or you don't deliver on a, on a show, you get a big solo and you goof it or your voice cracks when you're singing a song, like those kinds of things that can cause pretty intense embarrassment that can make you question if you're good enough. Like, can I do this? Can I have this moment? Or you start getting a, afraid mm. when you come up to approaching that part that, man, I'm going to, I'm going to screw this up again. And that's going to feel terrible. I think writer's block, writer's block. Oh, yep. I feel that's something I can relate to. You know, there's, there's times where I'm just like, I just don't know if I, I'm feeling the urge to do this anymore. Am I not? Is it not there? Is it gone? Am I not? You know, let's tie this back to artistic jealousy, mm -hmm. small t trauma and artistic jealousy. Sure. We'll, we'll rewind it. So we were talking about if you're, if you're experiencing that feeling to take a moment and look at what's going on for me right now that might be giving rise to these feelings. So the way I look at it is that you mentioned the word processing. Processing is essentially the way we allow an emotional experience to communicate to us what we needed to take from it, to assign meaning to an experience that we then create a resource for cognitively and resolve the emotion, but keep the raw knowledge or keep the, keep the refined knowledge. So basically you go through something that hurts and you work through that and then feel like, okay, I've learned from that. I can do better the next time that I encounter something similar with the knowledge of how I failed and what caused the failure. And now I feel like I have some control over it or at least some ability to influence a similar situation again. So I feel like I've gained some mastery over it. Mm -hmm. Now I'm not as upset and I, I can just, okay, I recognize that that sucked when it happened, but it, I don't have to keep feeling bad in order to keep the knowledge I gained from the bad experience. So let's let's take a let's let's apply that to an example. Sure. Um, so it could be, let's say musically, you think you know a song well enough, and you get on stage and you're jamming out with the band and you're playing the song and you get a little absorbed by the moment and you forget the words, and you're stuck in the moment like you got this big opportunity and you forget the words to the song mm -hmm. and you're left standing there with all the eyes on you, all the lights on you, the band depending on you and you screw up. This is when I want to insert Eminem's lose yourself into our chat. <laughs> into our chat. Okay, uh, go, please go ahead. Yeah. Right. Pick up the guitar and start jamming that chord <laughs> right now. <laughs> but the then coming back and like maybe not being so willing to do this anymore or feeling really bad about yourself and feeling like, I'm just not good enough. I can't do this. And I think until you process that, that, hey, you might need to practice even more than you thought and practice under different conditions and practice harder and more. And when you feel like, okay, I've learned from what I did to not practice it enough under the right conditions that I kept, maybe I kept rehearsing with the, the backing track on with the vocals and didn't realize when I got on stage, there won't be a backing track. Uh-huh. 
the vocals won't be there. I won't be relying on audio, other audio clue, cues to trigger my memory. I'm going to have to have this set for myself while playing. And maybe I rehearsed it in the car over and over again, but that's not the same as having a guitar in your hands and trying to manage multiple things. So practicing it under the right conditions and feeling like, okay, now I'm confident again that I can do this and I learned I have to learn differently for myself in order to be able to pull this off in the moment. And until you resolve the bad feelings that came from the mess up and the embarrassment that comes with that and the shame and guilt even, you may not get to the point where you're even willing to approach practicing it that way or consider performing it again. And that may take some time. So there's a, yeah, this working through of, you know, I can, I can picture myself in this moment and even having a response is like, you know, I'm not playing that song again, or I suck as a musician or, you know, so many people are better. Just these really broad, huge statements mm -hmm. uh, that are full of that embarrassment and that being upset with yourself, anger, sadness, disappointment, all of those feelings coming up. Yeah, all the above. Very moody to your bandmates after inconsolable. I have been that person and I have worked with that person who's been inconsolable after performance. A lot. That happens a lot. Musicians we, are moody. And we're our own worst critics. Like most people won't even notice the screw ups you do because you'll, right. you're probably going to be in flow state. And even if you don't remember the words, particularly if it's your song, whatever you make up, no one will know the difference. Right. Except by your face. And if you sell it, you just keep going. But a musician will go back and listen to the recording or watch the video and criticize the shit out of themselves. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Where no one else will do that. Like, so, oh, you guys had an awesome show. And you're like, no, I screwed up that part. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So many times I've, I've heard and seen so many people feel that way. And I felt that way myself. Um, but yeah, you can get caught, I think, at that level of just feeling awful. And I think what you're saying is you've got to kind of acknowledge those feelings and work through them. And then you figure out a way to kind of make them productive. You know, what do I do with this? Do I need to figure out a different way to practice? Do I need to think about a different way to think about it? You know, they probably didn't notice. You Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. But having feeling like, I usually use a bell curve to kind of illustrate this example is if you think about the bell curve from statistics, right? The lovely mm -hmm. bell shape and um, any experience we have, enters our brain on the right side, right? We, we perceive all experiences through the lens of an emotion first and then have to digest it and process it to get it to move into working memory on the left side of our brain. You have an emotional experience to make it or emotional. You need, emotions are the enzyme that digests the experience, basically. Mm. So you, you have to have an emotion to make sense of the experience you've had, and then you can make sense of it after you've done that. But the experience doesn't encode in your brain without an emotion. And you don't, well, what I mean by that is you can go to the grocery store and if nothing notable happens, if I asked you what happened three grocery store trips ago, you're going to be like, I, I don't know. I bought groceries. <laughs> it will go into like a non-specific memory pool where you're like, it could be one of a thousand times you went and it'll be like, yeah, going to the grocery store. I, I go up and down the aisles. I put stuff in there. Or what happened three drives to work ago? And you're like, I don't know. I drove to work. Right. And 
But if something happened, you got in a car accident, you're going to be able to remember very specific details that will have encoded because you had an emotional experience about it. And when we have guilt or shame, an emotion goes through that wave. So it goes, starts emotional processing, makes sense of it, rises and falls. As you go through the bell curve, so we have an experience, we have an emotion about it, we resolve the emotion, we make sense of it, it becomes stored and encoded in our library of, ah, this is what you do when this happens. Good. Do this again. Don't do that again. Got it. Okay, moving on. But when you have shame or guilt, it's like a big slash coming through and you don't let yourself resolve the emotion. It doesn't get over that midline because shame blocks processing. It blocks you from having enough emotions or releasing yourself from it to the point that you can make sense of them. So you just stay trapped in this emotional activation over and over and over again. Why is that? What is it about shame? Shame is a biological deactivator. Shame is the process we use internally to stop ourselves from doing things we're not supposed to. I, I think about the feeling you had of, I would really like to smack the living shit out of this person right now. Uh -huh. <laughs> but then you feel this, like you feel you're still starting to get angry and you then feel something that goes like, ah, we're not going to do that. And it almost always comes with the same facial expression of, and body reaction. And it, you get an affectual trigger to stop. So it's like the, the stop sign in your brain. In order to, let's say you're getting so mad you might strike somebody or threatened. There has to be a threshold point in our brain where that behavior is released, right? From social norms going, okay, I cannot hit this person or I will go to jail. Uh -huh. There has to be enough of a threat or enough anger that you let go of those blocks on that behavior, right? Mm -hmm. Like if someone's someone's following you, someone's harassing you, they're harassing you, harassing you, harassing you, you might ignore them, walk away, walk away. But if they touch you, mm -hmm. game on. Right. If they make it clear they're ignoring social norms and now they're a danger to you, you're going to do whatever you have to do. Mm -hmm. But you have to get to a certain level of biological activation before you can do that. And shame can prevent you from getting there. And that can be a good thing. We have societal shame. We learn as children, like, ah, if I hit other kids, I'm not going to have any friends, so I probably should not do that. When I'm mad, I need to regulate myself. Right. But that can also work against us when we need to have enough of an emotion to process the relevance of the situation. And if you have emotions, but they aren't enough to encode the experience with enough relevance that are a matching relevance to your survival that the situation had. So if you're, you've got a big musical opportunity and you know, thinking about eight mile, you get, you know, <laughs> it'll be a rabbit gets on stage in front of all these people and he's choking now, yeah. right? He's like, he chokes and he feels all this shame and it takes him quite a long time to get back on the stage and take on Papa Doc. And he freezes. He freezes in that rap battle for a second before he engages again. And it took him a long time of getting working through that to get back out there. That happens to, I think, all of us. And I think part of why that movie was as powerful as it was, that that moment is something that happens to a lot of us, all of us musicians. You will have that moment where you blow a big opportunity and then feel like you're not good enough, but 
you don't allow yourself to feel enough of the bad feeling to motivate you to mm -hmm. do better, to do the things you need to do to get better, to realize, holy shit, music is hard. Music is hard and perfection in many realms of music is the only acceptable performance, mm -hmm. absolute perfection, which is unattainable. So that creates its own problem. But when you feel that shame that I did not achieve perfection, I did not deliver, you need to be able to have the bad feeling to help you get the meaning you needed from it to motivate yourself to do better in your rehearsal, in your preparation, to create space to have that time. You have to create some kind of meaning from your bad experience and you can't do that until you resolve the bad feelings. How do you allow yourself, how do you feel the bad feelings? Someone's like, well, how do I do that? I know it's there. Allowing yourself to have the space to emote. And it, it, it's hard. It's hard to create space for that because we, we create defense mechanisms to, mm -hmm. for ego defense, right? Mm -hmm. Like we create parts to go like, oh, no, no. No, I can handle that bad feeling. Like I'll punch out, but you, core self, you can't handle that. So I'll take that from you. Don't worry. You have to convince the part that you are no longer in the space where you can be harmed by the memory and you need to be able to sit in the feeling to let it go. And giving yourself space and permission to sit and just non judgmentally allow yourself, if you're going to cry, you're going to cry. If you're going to be angry, you're going to be angry, but you, need to have that at a level that matches the relevance that had to your actualization so that you can move through it, encode it, make meaning of it, and let it go. You have to go through the whole grief process. You know, one thing that I will share with my clients in, in an effort to be reassuring when they're having hard feelings is that hard feelings will have a peak, but they will become less acute. You mm -hmm. know, they have a they will expand and it will be really, really hard, but then they will fade. It's not a forever thing, even if it feels like it might be. Right. Right. That, that message we get from, from ACT therapy of, hey, look, you're having feelings for a reason. And what we need to do is accept that they're, they're coming in, accept that you're going to have them and recognize the bad feeling isn't forever. And at the peak bad feeling, like you're saying, it's not forever. It might be a while, mm -hmm. but just because a bad feeling starts doesn't mean you're going to be there forever. And you might need to take the meaning from that bad feeling to communicate to you how to make a commitment to do something different. So let me... Let's let's return to a jealous feeling. And I'm going to get vulnerable here because I think... I think it'd be, you know, part of the, the purpose of this episode is to normalize this stuff. Right. And uh, even if some of this stuff is embarrassing or cringy, mm -hmm. um, I think we all feel it. So, oh, yeah. you know, I find myself when I'm working on music, this is one way that it manifests. It manifests different ways. But one one thing I notice that I do, if somebody comes out with maybe a new a new track or a new album, this could be somebody I know or that I don't know. 
um, is that I'll find myself picking it apart. You know, I'll be like, oh, I don't love how they mix the vocals in there or, mm-hmm. oh, needed a better needed a better bridge. You know, just kind of just being mean a little bit to it. Cri- very critical, I think. Uh, and Very easy to do. Yeah, and, and I think that that is, you know, you're talking about a defense mechanism where what I'm actually feeling right there is some jealousy of they have a new track out. I actually like some of the way this sounds, even all of the way it sounds. You know, I got to find something about it to ease how I'm kind of wishing I was putting something out. Yep. That's, I think, how a, a big way that that manifests for myself. Yeah, I think I feel the same thing sometimes, particularly when I hear some modern pop uh-huh. or even hip hop where there are so many ridiculous or just simple songs that are have no content or basis to them or anything and then all of a sudden it's getting all this attention and money and success and you're sitting there like I have written better songs than this in my sleep. Mm-hmm. And this dude's just talking about his dick. (laughs) (laughs) Like, seriously. This dude's just out here blasting some chauvinist nonsense, and I can't get an ounce of traction from my emotionally raw and powerful song that I wrote that I put years of musical theory knowledge into and technique, and this dumbass just got out here and got famous off of this. Right. Really? <laughs> it's it, it can be really hard. Or even if they're they are musically sound songs, some of those I think I get that same response sometimes of like, really this? Right. This. This is the most popular song right now. Exactly. Exactly. And then it's, you know, uh I just like that. I just like the whole experience. I I I I feel like it has almost changed being a musician. I mean, I wanted to make music because of how much I love music and because of how it would make me feel and how much I wanted to learn how to play a song or sing along with it or how it just spoke to me and reflected my own emotions. And now I feel like my relationship with some music has changed because I'm comparing and those jealous feelings come up. Yeah. Yeah, that can be really hard. With like feeling like, I would like to be open-minded to other types of music, and people probably like this for a reason. But when I hear it, and I think about... Uh, it, Jane Silent Bob just coming to my head. Over, like, I hear these no-talent <laughs> ass clowns. <laughs> like, And they're, they're, they're living their dream and making so much stupid money and i have so much more talent than that and i just can't get anyone to pay an ounce of attention to my music i feel like the money the money thing seems to be popping up for you i'm hearing i I mean it's not just that it's just something i hear from other clients that are like actors or musicians i mean myself too i mean money does not buy happiness but it does make a lot of things a lot easier it pays the rent it does yeah and they just but it seeing that level of of success mm-hmm. 
in whatever found, whether it's through exposure or relevance, but getting to getting to play the big shows and getting the fame and the the dollars that come along with that are what a lot of people who are trying to make a career in music are are wanting. They want right the status, the status. The, yeah, the big show, the big deal, to be the big deal, and it is really really hard to get there. Yeah. So these are these are pretty primal feelings, you know. We're talking about status among among our fellow humans. Mm-hmm. Resources, jealousy. These are all very base level feelings in a way. Yeah, yeah, they are. So. Here's another one. Here's something else that I want to discuss because it is so, it is, it is like these interviews that I've done on this podcast, this comes up over and over and over mm-hmm. again, and that's musicians relationship with social media. And people don't use the word jealousy when they're talking about this really, but they'll use the word comparing. And I think that that's in there i think that that's kind of what that's about and so it's you know people will talk about this relationship where you feel as though you sort of have to slash want to be part of social media it's how you share what you're making and it's how you learn about what other people are doing and making and and there can be something about that just kind of the way for example people learn about shows these days it's it's just the way that we're functioning but people will it just brings up really bad icky feelings for people where they'll find themselves comparing they're comparing anything from another artist's general aesthetic you know that the choices they're making and the way they're presenting themselves and kind of assessing their own aesthetic or i think the big one that comes up is is numbers so mm-hmm. comments and likes and followers and listens on Spotify and and just this really hard data that is saying here's where this person is at here's where you're at hard not to compare when you have when you have numbers in front of you it is and i think if you've never played out you don't understand how relevant that is that uh, these NTACs, as I decided I would call them, the no-talent-ass clowns who <laughs> <laughs> work for the police department, so acronyms are part of my uh, part of my life here. But the the people who have numbers behind them, even when their music is, to your taste, terrible, uh-huh. that they're getting better opportunities than you and having better success that that I think triggers that jealousy that comparing or even if someone is comparable to you and not an NTAC they are a a, you know comparable act but for whatever reason they have a better draw because draw determines your success draw or sales that's it and in order to get those likes and social media presence are these days necessary it used to be magazine interviews or album reviews, newspaper presence, some kind of relationship with the press. But now uh, your relationship with the press is largely taken into your own hands. 
and can be boosted by the press, but social media allows people to have access that to themselves, or at least they think it, it does. But what they don't realize, and I uh, did an interview with, or, or my show did, not just me and my partners, and I did a interview with Spreaker about how to use social media ads to build your presence and build the success of your show. Because if you don't put dollars into advertising and crack the algorithm with creating a base audience for yourself, you will get no traction on social media. You can beg your friends to share and try to get as much likes and attention on your show as possible and talk about it at shows. But if you aren't getting that instinctual reaction to click a like of something that social media thrust in your face and thrust in the face of people like you on your on their phones, you're not going to get any traction. And people don't realize that or when someone else gets lucky, get really jealous of it because they've been grinding and grinding, trying to get those likes and get the attention. And somebody else on social media just got a whole bunch of attention and likes that makes it a whole lot easier for them to gain traction and momentum than you ever did. So here's an element to this that is important to feeling jealous when you're looking at where somebody else is at, is that there are often mechan mechanisms at work behind the scenes that you may not even be aware of. Whether they're putting money into advertising, whether they've had a publicist for years and kept that quiet or, right. which they you usually know, do. Yeah. Uh, yes. I talked about that on my last episode with a publicist. Um, he was like, why doesn't anybody tag me? <laughs> like nobody wants to let anybody know that they have a publicist. Um, that there are, or maybe they have family connections. There, there may be something going on there also that you may not be aware of behind the scenes that, you know, part of jealousy, I think, is trying to sort out, I see a gap. Like you're saying, if there's somebody who you feel like, well, we're, we're I don't see the difference really, you know, we're kind of at the same spot in a way. And, and what mm -hmm. what is this gap? How do you explain this gap that you said it before that luck plays a part of it? Oh, yeah. That there's also... There might also be these other forces or entities that are playing a role in how somebody's approaching their career. Um, and, you know, I kind of want to get to um, what we can do with, with jealousy. You know, how what are ways that you can process this feeling? How can you, you know, somebody asked um, on Instagram, I asked for questions for this taping, and they said, can this ever be... Can jealousy ever be productive? And so I, I, I want to, of course, get to get to a little bit of that. What what can a person do if they're having these feelings? That might help. Yeah, and that's important. I think for me, and I, I realize that in my office here, I have a handy-dandy drawing here that I made before. We'll see if I hold it up and it can work mm. of my little... Ah. Uh -huh. right here, but you'll have to uh, send me that so I can put it on the show notes at musictherapypodcast.com. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll, I have a couple different versions on this. I've been working on it for like a year um, off and on. But looking at this chart, you see where I have, there's a big slash and that swirl of repeating things where you just stay stuck. Yeah, and this is what, the that bell curve you were talking about before. It is. And that yeah. bell curve is important because if you stay stuck in the unprocessed 
activated emotion. Jealousy. The jealousy or mm-hmm. any or shame. And usually here's the thing about jealousy. Oftentimes it triggers shame mm-hmm. or okay. guilt that you, that you don't realize it's doing. But okay. Yeah. You may not. It may not be a guilt that you're not doing enough or shame that you're not as successful. Right. But yeah. if you can't get past that hump and get onto the other side, it's like being on the worst roller coaster ride ever where you get emotionally activated until you find a way to numb out from the bad feeling, Uh which oftentimes happens because people feel they don't have the resources to tolerate the worst moments of the bad feeling like you were talking about. They don't realize it won't be as long or as intense forever. Yeah. But if they think it's going to be forever, they'll activate their freeze part or their flight part and get away from that feeling. Yeah. And... Why I think that's so important to understand is that... Or avoid. Oh, right. Any avoidance. They'll avoid. avoid it. Don't touch the guitar. Just don't touch the guitar. Don't write the whole thing off. Right. Give up. Give up. All of that is a function of flight. And recognizing that if you can't get past that shame wall, you won't feel what you need to feel in order to motivate you to change your behavior or realize it might be time to let that dream go, which happens too. It is okay to realize that a, a time period in your life has changed and you can let that go and just access music in a way that works for you now. That's okay too. But realizing, or that's not going to work for right now. There, there are a lot of people that have to put music away in their late 20s, early 30s, because career demands, child raising demands, Mm -hmm. traveling for work or whatever, just makes it impossible. Then they get back to it in their 40s or 50s when they have teenagers who are college kids and they have space again. Yeah. Or people that work for them, so they don't have to do as much work. But realizing that if you can't get some time to grieve for what you couldn't have or for the mistakes that you made, so that you can make peace and take meaning from the bad feelings. Be vulnerable to them and let them communicate to you what you need from them to change your behavior accordingly. Mm-hmm. You don't gain the mastery over the experience you need to make it a resource or a motivation point instead of something that continues to hurt you and make you feel bad actively. That, I really connect with that. And that's something that I remind myself of frequently and will share with my clients as I think, and I'm going to use the word envy here because envy, I don't know why it feels like a slightly more positive uh, word than jealousy, but um, I think envy can be really useful. I think it really shows you what you want. And if you're recognizing there's a gap between what's here and where I'm at. And this is speaking to me. This is saying, this is important to me. This is something that I want. You can acknowledge it's, it's there. You can acknowledge it's something that you want. And then like you're saying, you can, you can put that into action. You can think about, well, how would I go about getting higher play counts? You know, what does one do to, to get that? How do I get better at guitar? All those kinds of things you can use that. So I think to the person's question, is is jealousy or envy ever productive? I think that it absolutely can be if you are using it, acknowledging it, and as you're saying, processing it fully yeah. mm-hmm. and getting to the other side where it's informing your behavior and your next steps. 
Right. I, I, I use anxiety as a way to communicate that to people. Like you need anxiety in order to motivate you to change your behavior in response to a threat. And by threat, I don't necessarily mean a threat to your life. Uh, our brain doesn't really differentiate between types of threat. It just activates accordingly to level of threat. But it's the same system that starts building you towards fight or flight. And by that definition, like anything that makes you anxious is useful. Just like you don't get out of bed mm -hmm. if you're not anxious about going to work right. or doing whatever you need to do. You get up when you feel like. But if you're anxious, you will set an alarm. And when the alarm goes off, you won't turn it off. You'll get up and and go. And that's where anxiety can be useful and isn't your enemy. You need to feel anxious enough that you motivate yourself to change in response to whatever's going on. And sure, that can get disordered and be misfiring when you don't need it to be and keep you worrying about the nth degree of things that aren't happening now. And that is a really hard experience. I don't want to minimize. That's a different level of anxiety. Right. Right. And I know a lot of people struggle with that, and I don't want that, them to feel minimized by that, but recognizing right. that some of the anxiety you feel is not disordered, it's adaptive. Yeah. And it makes you feel enough motivation to change, but you have to let it in for that. You have to feel like, oh, man, uh, I, I don't know what I'm going to do about this bill. I got to pay this bill. I, I don't know what I got to do. And you got to like, you got to work. <laughs> right. You right. gotta go to work. You know, you gotta or save money or sell some stocks or like what whatever it is you need to do, you need to find that and you need to let anxiety guide you to take that action to resolve that problem. Yeah. So I think jealousy can be just as useful in any emotion that you need to feel it to the appropriate level that it matches what you need to get from it to change. And for music, that can be and people go through all these ridiculous things of like, oh, if I just buy a better guitar or I get a better pedal or I get a better amp, I'll have that sound that I want. And no, man, the answer is almost mm -hmm. always you need to practice yeah. <laughs> more, 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 more. It's almost always what you need to do to get better is not buy more toys. It is dedicate more time mindfully, purposefully to rehearsing what you're trying to get out of it. You know, I'll say I'll share something here because this is more of a usually I, I, I let the guest. Um, it's all about the guest. And today I'm, I'm being a little bit more vulnerable, but I'm going to share something that has helped me just a way to think about all this. I mean, I do feel I have a resistance to using the word competitive and maybe it actually is competitive feeling that I have. But I think that some of these feelings of jealousy um, inspire me. You know, if someone has like made this amazing song and it sounds so good and I love the twists and turns of the melody and all that stuff, I, and I think that there's, there's so much going on in the Chicago music scene right now. People are just at prime levels of, of what they're doing that I think that there can also be a healthy amount of pushing each other through these feelings, you know, we're all mm -hmm. like, you did that. Let me see what I can do. And then let me see what I can do. And, and, and that, if that feeling I think is kept in the right place where it's not toxic, but it's more like inspiring or motivating. Right. 
that can be pretty amazing, not just individually, but for, you know, musicians in general, as, as you're playing off each other. And I think a lot of scenes develop that way. You're playing off each other. And I think that um, even though there are limited number of spots on a stage, a limited number of nights, and only so many people make a best of list, I still think that music is not a zero sum game. Listeners don't pick one band and oh, that's no. the band they listen to. Nope. Listeners sure have don't. hundreds or thousands of bands on their, uh, I was going to say iPod, but you know what I mean? They've got, there's so many artists out there and there's room for so many musicians to be doing amazing things. And so I think remembering that this is not, this is not a zero sum game. This is not a winner takes all thing. There's room for everybody. There, There is. And much like therapy or podcasts or anything else, just because a lot of people resonate with one person's voice doesn't mean they won't resonate with yours. And it certainly doesn't mean that the message they need to hear has to come from some other source. The way you deliver a message might be exactly the way a listener or a client needs to hear it. And giving yourself some space to be empowered that your voice is the right one for the right listener. You just might have to do some work to find that listener mm -hmm. yeah. and get really lucky. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ben, this has been a really great conversation. I learned some things today from you. I, I really appreciate your time. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm happy to have been a guest. I really appreciate the invite. Oh yeah. Um, I'm, I'm very excited to look out for your Metallica project. You'll have to keep me posted on that. I, I will. I'm, I'm hopeful. It seems that we've got four guys together and we're, we're getting along. We seem to have, you know, the, the, sorted out some similar goals. So I think, I, I think it'll get off the ground. We just, my, myself and uh, my bassist have been dealing with some arm nerve injury issues that have been oh, no. uh, responsible for some of our artistic jealousy issues that like, wow, my body is not allowing me to play. Uh, yeah. But um, I think we're getting through those and hopefully it takes off soon. Okay. Well, um, definitely going to put um, a copy of the chart that you showed me um, for any listener who wants to go to the uh, musictherapypodcast.com uh, website for the show notes so you can kind of get that visual. Um, but thank you again, Ben. It was a pleasure. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, you guys. I hope you like that. I want to thank Ben for his time and his thoughts. I hope you guys are hanging in there, that your new year is off to a good start. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Music Therapy is hosted by Jessica Risker, produced by Sullivan Davis of Local Universe, and engineered by Joshua Wentz in Chicago. Peace and love until I see you again. Mm -hmm.